Hi, I'm Will. And I'm Luke. And this is Will and Luke Discuss. A vodcast. And podcast. Where we discuss content related to psychology, personal growth, self-development, and well-being. This This episode, episode, we're discussing the second half of The Six Pillars of Self-Esteem by Nathaniel Brandon. Thanks for sharing that, Will. I'm going to uh, overlay a nice, clean image of the book on top anyway, but I appreciate you putting up. That's <laughs> <laughs> the only reason I brought it. Part two. Uh, so in this half, we're doing this last three pillars, which are the practice of self-assertiveness, the practice of living purposefully, and the practice of personal integrity, and then also the external factors to self-esteem. Good shit. Cool. Yeah, good stuff. And just a reminder that we covered the first three, which were living consciously, self-acceptance, and self-responsibility, in case we did forgot what those were. Cool. So um, I reckon a good place to start would probably be on self-assertiveness, which is pillar number four. And he describes this as honouring our wants, needs, and values, and seeking appropriate forms of their expression. So a nice, clear, crisp definition. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, this um, this is something I thought about a lot in a in a cultural context, which he talks about in the external factors to do with self esteem. Yeah, later on in the book, and I, I suppose that was something that was resonating with me was how um, I found my upbringing, particularly being from England as well. I felt aspects that. I wasn't particularly self-assertive because I found that went against the cultural concept that I grew up in. Um, I know there's a lot more to unpack about this, but that yeah. that's the bit that stood out quite strongly to me. So the culture you lived in, you feel you didn't, uh, didn't nurture your self-assertiveness. <laughs> no, no. I think it, um, I guess it, it always felt, in a way, rude to assert your wants and needs. Yeah, I think um, I mentioned this last time, but yeah. <laughs> I, I, I talked about, like, as a kid, at least, when you, like, going to mates' houses and, like, always turning down stuff I was offered, even if I wanted it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I know. It's shocking, do you want a snack? Do you want a drink? No, thanks. But, but, but I did. <laughs> yeah, and I think, um, I think later in life, um, I, I always found self-assertiveness linked with with arrogance almost. And it's taken me oh. quite a long, it's taken me a long amount of time to, to actually realize that that's not, it's not a negative trait to be assertive. I guess I always as- yeah. associated being assertive with being aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. Like um, a negative. Yeah. Negative. So in, you know, in reading this book, I suppose it's kind of cemented that no it isn't a negative thing and also that it's really nurturing for your self-esteem to be able to assert your needs and wants clearly yeah. it's it's a sign and particularly in that second part um of his definition of self-esteem around um self-respect yeah that yeah it's really self-esteem in, enhancing to yeah ask for what you need feel deserving of getting your needs met and doing things that are in, in line with your values yeah i think there's an important distinction there to be made between like your needs and your specific wants so like in being like yeah. deserving of getting your needs met it doesn't mean that like when i ask this specific person to give me this specific thing that like yeah i'm entitled for them to do that for me it's more the mm. stance that in general like i honor my needs and that like 
I'm I'm happy to um, ask when I want when I need help, and I'm a- happy to say no when it's something I don't want or goes against or clashes with my needs. Mm. But that if uh, but it's not like I guess the kind of what you're talking about with coming across as arrogant is that that I think the balance would be people would see it as being like selfish or like entitled or something like that to be too uh, dominantly assertive, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, um, it's part of what he talks about is that this is around, you know, confronting things rather than avoiding things. So yeah. Putting yourself out there in a way to get your needs met. So when you have a choice of saying your preference or doing something that you want to do, you don't avoid that situation for the short-term discomfort. You're willing to confront things for, um, you know, for the long-term benefit of yourself. You know, it's better to live in line with my values if in situations I continually assert that myself. Yeah, yeah. And that each time you don't, it's, we've been using this phrase a lot, but it's like a vote against yourself. It's like, yeah, yeah. The, um, he's, the, he says in the book that this leads to uh, a realised sense of self, in particular to individuation and the building of relationships, um, which which I quite like. So I, I suppose when you talk about autonomy yeah. and making decisions that are best for you and living a life that's in line with your values and your needs, yeah. to, to get that requires a level of self-assertion, being yeah, able to... Yeah, yeah put yourself out there, you know, in, even down to the simple behaviors of, you know, being able to, you know, speak clearly, formulate your ideas, um, put them across to other people, be able to communicate, be able to listen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, I think there's a lot of micro skills involved with this one. And, um, and in relation to the building of relationship side of this, obviously that requires communication too. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and that would build, you know, a level of, um, I can see how it could build, you know, intimacy and connectedness with with people if you're able to assert your needs and wants. Yeah. Clearly, you know, pe- people will see you as someone who who has their ideas straight and what they want is clear. Yeah, and it's also quite a vulnerable thing to do um, as well. You know, we can see it as some, maybe culturally see it as being um, aggressive or, overly dominant or something or authoritative or something but it's also to say like i don't know like i need a cuddle <laughs> isn't uh mm. wouldn't be seen as aggressive and dominant would it it's sort of a vulnerable <laughs> yeah. thing to to say um mm. and i guess I'd- as well when on top of what you said about relationships if did you mean like romantic or did you just mean in general um uh friendship friendships and also i guess you know romantic yeah. relationships as well okay well, well with, with either if if i set a precedent of uh being someone who's uh, like shares what i want shares my ideas uh shares my feelings and then conversely you know s- says uh no and shares what i don't want when it's appropriate then um if that's a consistent part of my character, then people around me, they can be at ease that, that like, yeah, well, 
Luke must be fine with this because if he wasn't, he would have said so. I, I, I know he would. Yeah. So, so it can put other people at ease, right? Because I know mm, there are times where I feel like uncomfortable where um, uh, maybe someone who isn't so self-assertive or someone I just don't know as well, I, I might be second guessing. It's like, well, they said they want this, but do they really? Because I don't really want to go forward with it if they don't actually want it and they're just trying to please me. So yeah, it makes it a whole yeah, mess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If we could just be clear, <laughs> then it's just so much easier to interact. Yeah, everyone's just waiting on each other to make a decision. <laughs> I, I wonder why. I wonder what the part of it that um, I personally used to find difficult, I wonder whether if I, if I think someone's being self-assertive, that they're not taking into account other people's needs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That might be the part of it that it comes across as selfish and therefore um, arrogant to presume that your needs are more important than other people's. Yeah. And there's, I think that's um, that, that version of selfishness, that's more like derogatory cultural sense of the word um, takes that extra leap that, that, it's not mutually exclusive to honor your own wants and needs and also honor the wants and needs of the people around you. Like they can all be on the table. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. but I guess that, that definition we think of as being selfish is to only consider my wants and needs and not care about the others. Not the wants of others. Yeah. But, but then the self-sacrificing would be to not care about your own wants and needs and to like put everyone else first all the time to the um, deficit of yourself. Yeah, and I, I guess as time's gone on, I've realised like how annoying it is when someone doesn't know what they want. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. something I've always found, um, oh, more recently found frustrating is when, um, you know, you ask someone what they want to do, and they say, "I don't know, I'm easy." Yeah, yeah, and it's like it's not that you're like relaxed or spontaneous; it's just that you don't know what you want. And I think or, I read or you're not willing before. to share it. Yeah. Or you're not willing to share it. So I think... Um, and it's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> like, not, oh, not I'm easy. easy, but it's not because, like, I want to know what you want so, so we can have a mutual decision. Uh, I don't know if this happened to you, but I, I've been, like, when there's, like, four of you wandering around town looking for somewhere <laughs> <Yeah>. to eat. <laughs> and it's just like, everyone's like, I don't mind, you choose. And then you're like, well, I really want this. And so I was like, oh, no, I don't want that. It's just like, oh, if everyone just said, like, exactly what they wanted. Yeah, yeah. Or like, if you genuinely didn't care, then you you don't get to contribute beyond that <laughs> <laughs> to the conversation. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess in, there's in a um, yeah. In terms of living consciously and self acceptance, it's like if 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 the person genuinely doesn't know what they want most of the time, then that's quite sad, really, because that's that's a level of um, sort of repression that has led from somewhere right where they've learned that like my wants and needs don't matter so much that like they don't, they don't even come to mind anymore, let alone express them. Yeah. 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 I can think of a few people like that. It's uh, it's hard in those situations where I notice when, when I go quiet is because I'm scared to assert myself. And often in those situations, particularly in work situations, um, it's around, needing to know information i need information and knowledge to be able to assert myself so in regards to my wants and needs that's knowing my values what's important to me where i want to be what i want to be doing 
Yeah. But in um, a work setting, it's around, yeah, do I have all the information necessary? Am I sure I want to say this? Is this, to the best of my knowledge, correct? Um, what is the purpose of saying this? If I have, in any sense, any doubt that any of that's missing, I'll tend to go towards the less self- self-assertive side. Um, Not sure I'm following. So yeah. what do you want the information I mean, for? Um, to, you know, if I'm sharing... Um, you know, some information about a client that's important to the team in general. Yeah. Like if I don't have all the information, yeah. I won't assert myself. Whereas Oh, so I, is I it can, is it like if they yeah. if I didn't have all the information and I said something which demonstrates that I didn't know it all, but they knew that information, then you might come across as looking like you don't know Yeah. Like you're, you're yeah. misinformed or something. Exactly. Yeah. And I guess it come, that's probably where the original um, frustration I had at people being self-assertive was um, a lot of it was that um, when I was at music school in Liverpool, where there was a lot of people who had a lot of um, charisma drive and um, yeah, that they would be very good at um, asserting themselves and putting themselves out there. Yeah. But a lot of it was just kind of, um, just bullshit, just lies. They were like faking how well they were doing in their careers, how right. how well things were going. I know I've drifted a bit from my last point, but no, no, I suppose good. in my eyes, self-assertiveness comes from a, a place of truth and a place of knowing. Otherwise, if it's not got that those elements to it, then it's just, it feels like lying. It feels like just bravado for the sake yeah. of bravado. Well, yeah. something this second half of the book really got me thinking about was uh, needs and values. And the way I've kind of formulated it is that needs are just inherent to the organism we are. Like, whereas values yeah. can be uh, both culturally instilled or chosen consciously. Yeah. Um, and in bad cases you can have values which actually clash with your innate needs when Mm. and that's a kind of recipe for chaos but like in the example you just used where it sounds like what nathaniel brandon called a sort of pseudo self-esteem where it's not coming from a place of honoring your true self but it's coming from a place of making sure you put out a persona so people's image of you is the way you want them to see you yeah, as opposed to what you actually are. Yeah, and then yeah. so then what you're being, what you're asserting isn't your like true needs and chosen values, but the the how you want to be perceived by others, which is sort mm. of a different level of assertion, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um makes me think just back to our chat about lying and things like that. They're just kind of. Yeah, just the truth they're putting out into the world just eventually won't be reflected back to them. You can make out that your your career is going well and life's going great, but then eventually, yeah. you know, the truth will truth will come back. Yeah, when well, that's the opposite mm. of what he, Nathaniel Brandon means by self-assertion, because you're you're literally hiding parts of yourself. Yeah, yeah, and that's what he talks a lot about. You know. Th- in linking it to like self-acceptance mm. you have to be able to accept all parts of yourself <laughs> yeah and, and then yeah. then at that point you would probably be able to um assert yours 
assert yourself once you know what you want. Yeah. It's the more we're talking about this, the more like, I feel like the, what would immediately come to mind with the phrase self-assertion is really not what he means. Like in this case, self-assertion might be like, I'm really scared. And that's, mm. that wouldn't come to mind as a form of self-assertion. Yeah. yeah. Um, and can, can you be self-assertive, I suppose, linking to this, like with yourself in a sense, or is he, I think that's with so the way I've understood it, which this came up last week and I, I really, uh, this has really helped me. It's like the first three pillars are like an internal stance you can take. So like to be, to live consciously, to live, to, uh, to accept yourself and to take the stance of I'm responsible. Like I could just stand here and have all those stances or have the opposite. And you wouldn't necessarily know because it's an mm. internal, uh, position I'm taking. Whereas the second three pillars are all about, um, behavior and expression in the world yeah yeah and i yeah. think the um practice of self-assertion is like the expression of self-acceptance like once you know what you want yeah. and need and what your values are then only from that platform can you take the next step of expressing it to the world and people in it yeah yeah hmm that maybe leads us on to the next one of uh, living purposefully. Yeah. Are you happy to move on to that one? Yeah. So off the back of what yeah. I just said, yeah. if, yeah. if, if, per, if self-responsibility is the, an internal stance, then mm. living purposefully would be the expression of that stance. Yeah. He describes um, at the beginning, he says uh, living purposefully entails four core issues. Yeah. Of, um, I mean, at risk of reading them out, I might just kind of go for it. Out there. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> he's so, a great writer. Um, I'm happy for you to quote him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so the first one is taking, uh, so living purposefully entails taking responsibility for formulating one's goals and purposes consciously. Yeah. Um, secondly, being concerned to identify the actions necessary to achieve one's goals. Monitoring behavior to check that is in alignment with one's goals and paying attention to the outcomes of one's actions to know whether they are leading where one wants to go. So this is all about like, um, if we know what our values and our desires are actually getting down to the nitty gritty of planning how to act by them. Like what actions are we taking to get what we want and yeah. reflecting back of if are those actions actually working and getting us the outcomes we desire. Mm. He describes it as um, proactive, not reactive. Oh yeah. So taking, you know, an active stance to do that. And he said, um, there's a quote he's got in the, uh, yeah. in the chapter that says success in life belongs to those who do, which, uh, which I quite liked that resonated. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a really simple, short quote. He, called, but, um, he quoted yeah. the uh, opposite of living purposefully as being like a cork floating on water. Cork floating on water. Yeah. <laughs> Just sort of bobbing along, drifting about. Yeah. yeah. He says, um, also in this, you know, it's around like deciding what's worth doing. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, make it, and that's what kind of goes back to those four points around, you know, deciding is what we want to do and living by that and then reflecting on whether 
that in, is in line with our values. So there's an element of like continual reflection as well when it comes to living purpose. Yeah. It's not being able to change direction if and when needed. Yeah, I guess that's that last bit of like monitoring outcomes. It's like, yeah, okay, so I've made a plan. Um, sticking to it, I'm actually getting what I want out of it. There's the elements I, of, um, sorry, like de- delayed gratification in there as well. Uh, he yeah. talks about and stuff around self-discipline we talked about in, um, in habits as well. So that's all ingrained there as well. You know, not, it, it's about, you know, putting, putting in structures, routines, habits, being purposeful with your time, being purposeful with where, with where you put your energy yeah. as well. When, um, I've been thinking about this, I was, uh, following this Tony Robbins program recently where he gets you to kind of like outline your life into your core values and then uh, set goals and behaviors for each one of them. And I noticed doing that, that there were some for me, which um, were easier to live purposefully by than others. And some which, which um, triggered much more like, avoidance procrastination putting off and like the i guess a uh a desire not to be as conscious so like there Mm. were some that took more effort to live consciously with and i guess like making plans and setting goals forces you to be to raise your consciousness to what you actually want and so um for some reason yeah some reason things like Diet and exercise, um, rearranging my finances, like clearing my possessions. These are all things that like, um, I could just sit down with a bit of thought, like set a few goals around and I would sort of happily crack on with them. Mm. And then things about like, um, creating content, updating my CV, like, um, looking for like teaching jobs there was for some reason there was this other category of things which i noticed when even though i i Mm. firstly when i sat down to write goals around them i would be more like i don't know this and that and then i would be like oh maybe it's time for lunch or i guess i could hoover the house yeah 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 it's like i think there's something in there around like um uh fear of failure or like like finding out what my limits of potential are in the realm of like uh, learning and um, I guess work and production Mm. and which for some reason is a more personal um, button for me than something like exercise, which um, for many people would be in the other category, right? Of things to avoid, Mm. to put off, to never think about. But for some reason that one, I'm Mm. like, yeah, that that fits with my self-concept. I've been slacking recently, but... I can get up and do that. <laughs> Comes a bit more naturally to you, doesn't yeah. it? And yeah, I guess it gets me thinking about in this pillar, it's around, yeah, a lot around strategizing, setting goals, but being living purposefully doesn't entail just doing like there's more to it than that. You know, it has to, you know, it's doing things with purpose or doing things that you believe are worth doing that serve a, you know, a greater purpose down, down the track as well. Yeah, um, like so planning for the future rather than just planning for the future. Doing things mm. today. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. 
There was something I wanted to ask you about that I highlighted in this uh, mm-hmm. chapter was um, he talks about that self-concept is revealed through purpose. So I'm wondering what, what that means to you or how you understood that. Cause I understand that as who people see you as is through the actions you take and the, the values you live by. That's how you're perceived by other people. Yeah. Um, but then I'm wondering how that ties into like self-concept. Does that relate to how you see yourself? Yeah, I think that ties back to, you know, when we were doing Atomic Habits and he talked about this idea of um, identity and mm. that like at, at some point, so let's say you, um, you want to learn guitar and you, you pick it up for the first time ever, play it for five minutes. You don't call yourself a guitarist. You pick it up the second day, you practice for five minutes. You probably still don't call yourself a guitarist. But at some point, (laughs) you reach this threshold where it's like, I'm a guitarist now. And somehow you've taken that on board. Um, That's what came up for me in terms of self-concept, that the more you act in line with something, like eventually it crosses this critical threshold where it becomes a part of your identity. Yeah, that's who you are. Yeah, yeah. No, thanks for that. That's, uh, yeah, I hadn't really thought about it like that. But it de- yeah, de- I can see how it definitely ties back into um, what we talked about in Atomic Habits and how if we keep casting votes for the identity of the person we want to be, yeah, that yeah. Stre- strengthens that identity and therefore our self-concept, the way we see ourselves and eventually the way other people see us as he's a guitarist. Yeah. yeah. And I guess it becomes, um, yeah, as well as internally casting a vote for ourselves if we if other people then see us that way and reflect that at us that probably helps us ingrain a sense of identity as well whether we Mm. like it or not yeah i think that does relate to the sixth pillar of personal integrity around um like being congruent so that your um your words and behavior match so I guess you're, you're living in line with your values and the person you want to be. So yeah. what he describes as is the integration of ideals, convictions, standards, beliefs, and behavior. Yeah. You know, um, uh, earlier when I was saying this difference between like needs and values. Yeah. Um, I was also thinking about that because I was trying to differentiate between self-assertiveness and living with uh, integrity. I was okay. like trying to think what the difference was. And I think the way, the way I got to it was like self-assertiveness is like honoring your innate needs and um, mm. like just what's, what's true about your inner life. You're willing to express it externally. Whereas personal integrity would be more like living in line with your chosen values that chosen values. Yeah. You've, yeah. You've purposely taken on because like that's in line with your sense of morality mm. and then living yeah, with those convictions. Yeah. Yeah. What, what I wrote down um, for this one is that you need your, your values first before you can practice integrity. Yeah. I mean, we, this is what I, uh, part of what I loved about Nathaniel Brandon's work. Cause I was uh, interested in philosophy before psychology and like it's when I learned that, well, we're already all, um, 
we already all have a worldview and beliefs and values, whether we like it or not, whether we think about them, whether we reflect on them, on them. like we're, we're born into a family and a culture and they're going to be instilled into us. Mm. And so you can't help that. So we're going to be living in line with values, whether we've considered them consciously or not. And yeah. I guess the practice of philosophy would help us consider what those are and reflect on whether we actually agree with them or not and you know take ideas from other schools of thought other cultures and compare and contrast them and then choose what to live by Hmm. yeah it's an interesting thought isn't it that like you could be living by values that you hadn't brought consciously into your awareness so and you might um sorry just to interrupt and you might have even taken a value on consciously but but that's like on, that's a drop in the ocean of consciousness. If you've been instilled with mm. a contrasting value from birth onwards, then that's going to be so much more powerful in those choice points and when you make actual decisions of behaviour in life. Oh, particularly in, rea- in um, reaction to moments of you know where you're you're fearful yeah. or you're being um, you know old old traumas, old memories are being brought up, you know, what behaviors do you revert to? And I suppose what this, this relates to in general is that like, you can choose what those are. You have a choice to reflect on those and to think about what, what it means to be authentic to you. Yeah. And you know, what it means to live in line with your values and assess like are the ones that I've grown up with that I'm surrounded by, do they serve me anymore? Yeah. yeah. Can I, um, can I update and refresh these? Yeah. He talked about this idea of um, like quite a common thing he hears is, well, only I know, like if you can do something in secret, if you can live uh, without integrity, but no one else knows, there's, there can be a sort of sense of, well, no one else will know about it, so it's fine. Like I, mm. I can... Okay. Um, so... I can pad my expense account and no one else will know, or like, uh, uh, I don't know if I, oh, I can cheat on my diet, but no one else is in the house at the moment. So no one will see that I've eaten this. No one will see it, yeah. And it's like implicit in that is that your (laughs) opinion is the least important out of anyone's. Like, what does it mean to say only I, like only I is to say like, I'm not important. Like other people's opinions matter way more than mine. So when I'm in mm. secret, I can live without integrity because I don't matter that much. And do you, do you think people avoid um, making decisions that sit well with them at the, in order to um, please other people? So like a lot of people can go through life, living a life just to please other people and living a life with other people's values because it's, almost too confronting to live by their own. Do you think that's the case for some people? Yeah, I'm sure it can be. And, or that, or or that they haven't, you know, you you might not have considered consciously what your values are. And one of your embedded implicit values, because the culture we've grown up in is like, please other people um, Mm. don't like initiate conflicts. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's, um, it's a big one, isn't it? That final pillar. It's, I found yeah. that one of the most kind of, uh, yeah, one of the most confronting ones to read, thinking about like, do my behaviors line up with my 
values and my actions and how, how do I monitor that? And I suppose I was speaking to you earlier on about, um, you know, congruence as well around being seen by others as I see myself and, you yeah. know, the, the, cha- the challenge of that being able to kind of, um, hold, you know, ho- hold yourself steady in all situations and that you're seen exactly as who you are and the, the challenge of that in varying situations. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me more. <laughs> well, I, I guess, um, it goes back a little bit to, I'll just, uh, check the earlier one, you know, around, um, well, I was talking about last, last week around, you know, at work only potentially showing certain sides of myself that wanted to be seen. Yeah. Um, you know, cause I'm in a profession, a profession environment. So, you know, maybe wanting to not be as, um, I know not as vocal about things that aren't work related or not sharing as much about myself or being a lot more, um, patient than I naturally would be in some situations. I guess I've just been reflecting a bit on, um, in all situations I go into, am I seen for who I really am or are there different, um, versions of me in different situations? Yeah. That's work social with my family. Um, I say less so with, um, you know, best friends like yourself where I feel I can just be entirely authentic. I, I feel the challenge for me is being able to be like this authentic in all areas of my life. And I think that is related to congruence. Like, am I living by my values? Are my yeah. words and behaviors lining up in all areas of my life? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I had this quote from the self-assertiveness chapter. Um, the refusal to fake my person to be liked. You say that again, the refusal to fake my person to be liked. Hmm. So I heard like, you the first time. I just wanted to hear it again. Yeah. <laughs> I, re- I refuse to fake who I am for the like, sake of how other people see me. I say, I kind of goes back to what you were saying about um, people from your music course, potentially. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a bold, it's a bold thing to do in my eyes. Yeah. You know, it's a challenge to truly put yourself out there. But then, then I think about, you know, is what, what level of, restraint or tact is appropriate in certain situations. Obviously I'm not going to share everything with everyone um, in all situations. Is it about sharing or is it about like the way I communicate or the way I'm feeling inside? You know, if I'm not feeling great, then I meet with a client for an interview. Yeah. I can't necessarily afford to show that when I'm with that person in that interview it's like yeah i guess it depends on the um purpose of what you're doing because we have ideas and thoughts and feelings all the time right and he, and he says that there's no like it's not possible or necessarily to share to externalize everything all the time like yeah um cuz you know even as we're talking now in conversation i might have uh, five or six thoughts that bob along and flitter away. And hmm. w- when it's my turn to talk, I might just pick one of them. Like there's no way of sharing everything all the time. So yeah. there's a cert- there's definitely a difference between externally faking something versus 
like selecting which parts of you to express or not yeah i think that's what relates to my um i guess difficulty with like self-assertion in other people is when i sense that the part that they're sharing feels like inappropriate to the situation so i've always been sensitive to that myself so in selecting what i share yeah i tend to go for a certain option in certain situations I'll always go for the more conservative option at work. Whereas with you, I guess I would go for the more kind of expressive, open option of thoughts going around yeah. in my head. Yeah. I guess. So, uh, um, yeah, I was just thinking then you mentioned like when you're with a client or something, I guess to the, to the, when I'm with clients, my full intention of being there is to um, aid their growth. Like that's mm. the point of why I'm there. Yeah. Um, so I guess to the degree that sharing parts of myself would be in line and helpful with that, then I would. Mm. Um, yeah. You tap into those parts of yourself that is like, okay, I'm here to work. I'm here to do my best. I'm here to be psychologically with the other person. Yeah, I guess I mean like also um, maybe I would share, like if I did have a really rough sleep and was feeling a bit tired that day and they said, oh, how are you doing? Like I might share that I'm a bit tired today because Cause they might, they might notice that I wasn't as chirpy as I was last week anyway, if whether I share it or not. And so if I don't say that, yeah, yeah, if I don't say that it, it might be left like, Oh, I want like, was he off with me today? Was it something I said? Yeah. Something like, yeah. Yeah. Do, see what I mean? So I know, I know what you mean. Yes. Yeah, I guess it's, um, there's a skill in that as well, yeah. depending on the context and the situation you're going into, you know, what, what's appropriate to the cultural conserve or the, uh, the environment that you're in, what part of yourself you do share. I suppose if it comes to the point where you're hiding all parts of yourself out of fear or, you know, finding that self exp- self-expression is a something you don't, you don't want to be doing more often than not, then that might be an indication that you're not living, living with integrity potentially. I think this idea of the appropriateness of what to express of all your being in any particular circumstance is, is really interesting, but I wouldn't want it to overshadow the main, like that, like mm. that, that's quite advanced. Whereas I think yeah, the major- yeah. in the majority of cases, it's like, if let's say you're in a work in a business meeting and yeah. the whole, the point of the meetings, a brainstorming session, you have ideas relevant to the session, like, yeah. and you're hiding them because you're scared of being judged. Like that's a circumstance where that part of your inner life is the most relevant part of your inner life to share at that time. Sure. And you're hiding it. Or, um, so those, the cases of where like, you know, do I share this part of my personal life at work today? It might be a more like, he talks about like, we only need to be sort of 5% more of these pillars than we were yesterday. Mm. And I think like that area would be like getting up towards a hundred percent. Whereas for most of us, most of the time it's like 
just sharing what is relevant to the situation can be quite difficult when we're scared of not yeah. being liked or being judged or true true yeah that's like a whole other level yeah I guess that's with um, looking for a restaurant with your mates, like in that moment, sharing what you want to eat, how hungry you are and where you'd like to eat is the most relevant part of your inner life to share. <laughs> and yeah, like, yeah, to, true. to hide that is, uh, you know, dishonoring yourself as he'd say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, that brings us to the end of the six pillars um, that he talks about the internal practices that we can conduct. Is there any, Anything else you wanted to say on personal integrity before we move on to the external factors affecting self-esteem? I'm not sure. It feels unfinished, <laughs> but I, I, maybe it? maybe um, I should think of more like personal examples to bring. Mm. Here's one I thought about actually earlier. Um, yeah. I don't know. I'm, I haven't quite formulated yet, but I recognize that as I was like coming down the stairs to set all this computer up and, and, and meet you, I, I noticed, yeah, we said we'd meet at nine o'clock and it was, it was kind of already nine o'clock and I was plugging stuff in and blah, blah, blah. And I, I thought like, if this was a client session, there's no way I'd be faffing around with setting up sound and that like, after the time we said we'd meet, I'm, I'm always there like before on time. On, on time. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's, and so why don't I give you and this the same level of respect as I have for those other appointments? Mm. Um, was it a value of yours to be on time and to be organized? I think with this, it's, yeah, I guess this would be more a respect of you and your time. And that just because we're closer, maybe like I'm more just like faffing about with it, which isn't fair yeah. really. Um, and it, I guess similarly, there are things, yeah, like, or even I could take it to a next level, whereas like um, in terms of living purposefully as well, we, before we'd started this like uh, podcast, video cast, whatever it is, we talked a lot about books we'd read, we'd share ideas, we'd have phone calls. And then at some point we'd be like, oh, it'd be really like, it would be really cool to express some of this um, publicly. And then we like, we made a plan, we made it happen, we chose some books, and then we set in dates and we set times. So in terms of setting goals, yeah. living purposefully, we did all that and now it's happening. Yeah. And I think I might have had similar um, ideas for myself, which didn't involve another person, but not put that same level of like, okay, well, let's make a plan, let's set a time, let's set a date and let's do it then mm. and like <laughs> stick to it and then review the outcomes. And there's something about in that, respecting this more than respecting myself and my own ideas does, does that make sense yeah. yeah yeah that's interesting yeah that you, is it just around you know accountability or um you know valuing a, 
a, an already existing relationship, whereas maybe you haven't built that relationship with yourself to honour? Yeah, I think it is accountability. But then the question becomes, why is accountability so important? Like, why, why is accountability to someone else not as important as accountability to myself? And arguably self-esteem, right? Yeah, like you haven't got the... I don't want to say it like this, but I'll say it. And you can, like you haven't got as much respect for yourself as you have for me, maybe, or, or yeah. respect for, for respect for solo work. Is, I would say it's even um, more. Uh, <laughs> I, it's not even as compassionate as that. It, it's like I've got less respect for my views of myself than I have for other people's views of me. Yeah. So like, yeah, I'm gonna show up and do this because. Like, I don't want you to think badly of me and to let you down. Whereas yeah. like, I won't show up for, I'm less likely to show up for goals I've set myself. Yeah. Or taking it a step back. Like clearly because we're close or whatever, I'm, I have, it's hard to say out loud, but it must be a subconscious thing. I have less respect for your view of me in this moment than maybe a client's view of me when I know I will be on time for their sessions and not for them. Yeah. There's different levels in different circumstances. Yeah. And I suppose, um, what personal integrity could be is that you show up with the same level of respect to everything you do, whether it's like something by yeah. yourself, whether it's for a client, whether it's for a friend that you're, and that's what he talks about in this as well, that, you know, you're, you're trusted that you'll follow through with things and you're respected. Yeah. So that in everything you do, I guess if you can build that um, for yourself, that you end up respecting and trusting yourself to yeah. get things done and do things on time. Like that's that's the ultimate, isn't it? It's like I am I'm accountable for everything I do, and I show up to myself when needed. I yeah, take the short, yeah, yeah. There's no way that if I set the same level of um, time, respect, and discipline to personal projects as i did with projects with you or with clients that after a while i that wouldn't build my self-esteem of course i'd feel better about myself if i stuck to things i said i'd stick to <laughs> like regardless of whoever sees it yeah it gets me thinking a lot about how um you know a lot of people are kind of very dedicated to their work but not to other areas of their life yeah so the fact that that's kind of set in stone locked in it's kind of like well you know i am a whether it's begrudgingly or not or where they just embody it, but they're like, oh, I do turn up to work on time and I do get the work done. But when they go home, they might not, you know, go to the gym, eat properly, not respect their body, yeah, respect their friends, their relationships. But it's weird how we give more respect to external things rather yeah. than to ourselves. It reminds me of that study. Have you seen it where the, I can't remember who and when, um, but this, uh, researcher interviewed um, people dying of old age and asked them to reflect on all their regrets and then sort of calibrated the most common regrets people have looking back over their life. And yeah, yeah. it's so, so that gives you a really good picture of values people actually hold deepest versus mm. how they actually live day to day. And so they would have said, you know, I wish I um, cherished the time when my kids were growing up because now I realize that was a once in a lifetime opportunity or I wish I was more connected mm. with the people in my life. I, I wish I um, really pursued the dreams I had 
things like really crushing things to hear like old people say yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and it's yeah. like uh i forgot why i was saying this what, what were you saying <laughs> yeah just around um like holding more respect for yourself yeah um, more, yeah in in all you do so i guess that would highlight that those are your actual values or yeah. at least for these people those were their actual values but years before living up they were unaware of them enough and not living by them enough that mm. um that yeah you're, you're living with that regret i guess yeah it's it's a big one personal integrity it really is i think yeah and i think i'm repeating myself but the the reason that i was com- had to think a lot about the difference between that integrity and assertiveness is because the word congruence for me fit both of them Mm, okay because it's like they're both uh external expressions of your inner self and but yeah i think assertiveness is is more external expressions of your needs whereas integrity is more external expression of your convictions and morality and values great wow i think that brings us to the end of the six pillars i think we'll we'll switch it up and move across to the external factors um Mm -hmm. there's a few i'm not sure oh can i jump in Um, yeah go for it yeah between the two sections there was a little chapter on the philosophy of self-esteem do you want to oh there was yeah uh, i I just want to mention that um i've kind of covered it but but it was about like beliefs and what they mean and so under these six pillars are all practices they're all either internal or external bits of effort (laughs) um but underpinning that effort, underpinning that action, um, and when I say action, that that can be like action of thought, so it doesn't have to be a behaviour necessarily. But underpinning that action is a whole belief system, and he calls this like the the philosophy of self esteem, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and he, he just, talks about yeah how they're um, like convictions as well that leads to like that it would evoke an emotion that would then guide our behaviour and stimulate behavior yeah which affects ourself and reality yeah and it's like it's a really important difference between between confusing the word belief with two different meanings by belief he doesn't mean just things we say we believe like it's we might not even be able to articulate some of them they're just so ingrained into our being that they're they're like felt and embedded and express yeah. themselves in the way we act so like yeah. um we could say i respect myself and you might sort of consciously believe that when you say it but if i only commit to projects where i'm concerned about how other people will view me if i don't commit and i don't commit to projects that i set for myself which I see is just as important, then clearly I don't have that felt sense of respecting myself because yeah. otherwise that belief would guide me in that direction. Mm. It's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting chapter just to get you thinking about the... Uh, I, I like the bit how it, it evokes an emotion and stimulates your behaviour. Yeah. You know, and he gives so many different examples of them, yeah. doesn't it, across all six pillars. But it's, um, 
Yeah, interesting to think about the the self-talk and the beliefs you have and even the way you talk about this to other people, you know, what you actually believe about your life and yourself and your your sense of worth and your goals and your purpose. Like what do you what is the language you use around that? Or is this all something that you haven't thought about? Yeah. I think it correlates to um core beliefs in CBT or cognitive mm. therapy. That yeah, these sort of unconscious guiding compasses which we can be quite unaware of but if we choose them consciously and then raise the courage to act by them even though it feels uncomfortable we can make them unconscious like procedural as well yeah yeah it's like the difference between reading how to ride a bike and actually knowing how to ride a bike yeah 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 <laughs> Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. That's um, yeah, good. We good. We actually touched on that. I uh, I do remember making a note on that. But yeah, thanks. Um, cool. So we'll go on to one of the uh, external um, factors that affect self esteem. And the first chapter he has in there is called nurturing a child's self esteem. So yeah. he talks a lot about the conditions of childhood that would nurture a child's self esteem, and talks about how. Um, the primary task of, um, you know, growing up from a child into an adult is, is selfhood and, you know, an evolution towards autonomy and living independently. And he talks about a lot of things that would, um, would facilitate a child's self-esteem growing into adulthood and being an individual and a lot of things that would get in the way of a child's, um, you know, building of self-esteem. Mm. Um, I've written a few ones down here. Um, start with one that I found interesting was, um, around acceptance. So yeah. if the child, a child growing up feels accepted by their parents, they don't have to reject any parts of themselves. So that would yeah. definitely play into the obviously self-acceptance, um, pillar of self-esteem. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Were there any that stood out for you at all or was that one that interested you? Yeah. Yeah. So this reminds me at the start of the book, he said about why he put the pillars and the practices first and then the influ childhood influences of, of them second is because now we can be like, well, if these are the um, principles we want to nurture, then we can reverse engineer that and, and look at childhood. Yeah. Yeah. And so if, if a principle of self-esteem is self, uh, consciousness or acceptance then how do we be such that a child will come to accept this themselves mm. um he talks uh in in this one in particular that it's around um balancing a child's need of protection and freedom yeah so finding that yeah, yeah. that fi fine balance between the two because if there's um too much protection then you're preventing any self-actualizing yeah. and any taking and um I guess a belief in themselves to step out into the world. But then if there's too much freedom, there's no structure, therefore maybe less expectations of behavior, less standards are set, less ideals to yeah. work towards. And I suppose it ties a bit into if there's too many choices and you can do whatever, then nothing becomes important. It'd be harder to maybe ingrain your, your wants and your yeah. preferences if there's too many things to choose from. Or you're given too much freedom just to do whatever you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, then he was talking about like permissive parenting 
as opposed to like authoritarian parenting. So mm. this ties um, right into attachment theory. So I guess the premise would be, I think one of the quotes in this book was like, um, you know, first you grow w- roots and then you grow wings. Yeah. So yeah. in attachment theory, you like as a, as a baby, you're completely, completely dependent, right? You, you need support for everything. And then, so you have this external secure base, which is, you know, the, the mother, the parents, the family, and then from this platform of a secure base, you can slowly learn to explore, um, to explore physically, to explore yourself internally. Yeah. Um, and if that, uh, and so there's a balance there between when we're exploring and things become overwhelming, knowing that we have a secure base to return to. To get back to, yeah. And that also that when we're exploring, that we are free to explore and there isn't like a helicopter parent leaning over everything we do and like... Yeah. <laughs> Too many restraints, yeah. Yeah, because that we learn what's... <clears throat> and this is a main criticism of behaviorism from an attachment perspective. We learn what's scary. No, everything's scary. <laughs> and then we learn what's safe from having a secure base and being able to explore the world from that secure base. Mm. And then we learn to find things more and more safe as, as our comfort zone increases and we explore Spans, yeah. more of the yeah. world. Mm. Um, and so when a parent is calm and secure in our presence of our exploration, we learn that you know, we can look at them and be like, okay, so this is safe because they're safe. Whereas if they're anxious about us, you know, on the monkey bars or whatever, then we're going to learn that this is a scary thing to do. Mm. Does that relate at all to um, the part he talks about around visibility? So getting, um, you know, effective mirroring from your primary caregivers around. So if you went and did something that was scary or new to you at a young age and you came back and you were scared, having parents who were able to go, oh, that seemed like it was really scary to you. Or, you know, you do something that's difficult and they go, oh, that must be really difficult for you. Yeah. Having that effective mirroring would give you a clearer view on reality around what is scary, what is, what is challenging, what interests you, what doesn't. Yeah, no, this idea of visibility was the main part that stood up for me in this chapter. Yeah, wow. That we... um, that we learn to self-accept when so life from a first person perspective is inherently subjective. Only another can give you an objective reflection of yourself. Um, This is sounding too technical because I think the idea is quite simple, but like we feel what it's like to be us, but then we also experience what it seems like other people see of us. Yeah. And when that pretty much fits for most of the time, for most things like that builds a sense of self-acceptance if, and he talks about like, it's not, it doesn't have to be agreement. You don't have to like placate everything the child wants, but you can, you can express that you see the child wants something without giving it to them. You can express that the, that you see the child's angry without, um, 
accepting that i don't know their violent outbursts is an acceptable form of behavior yeah yeah so, yeah so there's like this yeah. um skill of like saying i accurately see what's inside you and holding that as a principle of parenting whilst also not just um giving in to all their whims and desires externally mm. like you can be a mirror without you can be a 100% mirror or you can aim to be without um giving them everything they want and he talks a lot about and he has a whole book called the i think it's called the disowned self um and he talks about that when we have pieces of ourself that we've denied it's a threat to see it in another person so if mm. if i have completely disowned any grief or sadness in myself i've shoved it in a box somewhere and i've repressed it then i can't handle it if you're grieving and sad around me because it, it's bringing my little repressed box up to the surface yeah so, wow so I, yeah. I have to find ways to get rid of that i have to dismiss you yeah. or leave and so it's not as simple as like do our parents mirror us well or not they might mirror us beautifully when we're physically hurt when um when we're learning where like they, they might mirror us in all different areas, but like have their own personal things. Like they can't cope with anger. So if we're angry, that's it. They're not going to reflect that. That's just like, you're a bad kid or like yeah. go to your room. Yeah. Like there's no, yeah. there might be certain emotions or certain things that were disowned and mirrored because they couldn't cope with it in themselves. Um, right. Yeah. So I guess the point I'm making there is that, yeah, mirroring doesn't have to be a sort of, blanket thing there can be very specific things that can be mirrored well and specific things that are disowned mm. or mismirrored <clears throat> something else that stood out to me is how um there can be a sense of like learnt self-rejection yeah so you know if, if you're um for example maybe growing up you were like punished for making mistakes or you were ridiculed if you make mistakes you can eventually learn that it's just safer to reject yourself and what he says here is yeah. that um you can't build self-esteem on the foundation of I'm not good enough. So if yeah. you were yeah. made to not feel good enough that your mistakes were silly or that your needs were unimportant, he's basically saying that's a really poor foundation for someone to build self-esteem from if they've had that sort of, that sort of childhood. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I, I wanted to speak about um, the section on work if you're okay. ready to, yeah. So, um, I guess I was thinking how both of us have got quite, we're both in the field of, um, trying to think of the broad field, like healthcare, social work, community work, that field. And we're, we're mm -hmm. typically working with people who are, um, maybe in some ways at more of a disadvantage, whether health wise or they're coming seeking for, they're seeking a service for help. Like yeah. they're in, there is they're some suffering in some way. <clears throat> they're suffering in some way. And there is some implicit or explicit, well, implicit power balance between the two, yeah. the two sides of it. And I suppose I've just reflected that I've never really worked in a workplace where it's been really, um, really competitive that I felt, um, potentially like threatened by other people's, um, character or their assertion or anything like that i guess i've yeah. worked in quite nurturing friendly kind workplaces yeah and haven't been in the sort of um 
I guess my knowledge is so low on it, but like the corporate world where yeah, I just yeah. feel like it's a bit more like aggressive. I, I guess I'm just saying that I reckon my self-esteem would take a real dent if I were working <laughs> in, in that right. sort of environment just compared yeah. to the one I'm in now. I, I guess I, yeah, I suppose in working with people, I feel like I'm building relationships and learning and there's less hierarchy. Yeah. I mean, some people would definitely argue against that, but I haven't experienced as much hierarchy as maybe yeah, I was yeah. expecting. Then if you were in like a cutthroat corporate sales position or something like that. Yeah, so you get my, yeah, you get my point. So I, I suppose I'm just wondering whether that's something <clears throat> you've reflected on in one, the client base, but also I suppose working relatively solo for the past four years, although you're part of an organization, um, wondering how you find find that and how that relates to workplace self-esteem and how that impacts you yeah well one thing i thought about kind of maybe a similar line in terms of uh living purposefully there's like a cultural blueprint which you could implicitly follow and then not not be hit with such a need to live purposefully. And what I mean by that is like, you know, if you go through um, a school system, a university institution where they're giving you timetables, they're saying, be here at this time. Um, you're, you're, you're here to achieve these goals and to hand it in this quality at this, this moment in time. And then if you move from that to say a nine to five, then it's like, yeah, we want you here at this point at this time, you're here to do these things. Here's the structure to do it by. <clears throat> um, I'm talking generally, but like there's a level at which you could get through a lot of that um, and not have to plan anything <laughs> particularly. Yeah. Not particularly um, purposeful. You're just kind of going run of the mill going with it. Yeah, because someone else has, like, um, people who set up the universities, the entrepreneurs who made the business you work in, like other people who have been forced to face living purposefully because they've entered a, they've entered a world of unknown to create a structure, and then mm. other people join that structure and don't have to do that. Um, and so I guess, yeah, like... I was thinking how to choose to be an entrepreneur would be um, perhaps a really good challenge of building one's self-esteem because you'd, you'd have to take so much of this on board. You'd have to really plan to organize your time, to set goals, to know mm. what your values of your company were going to be, to be assertive. Yeah. Like, um, and I'm not, you know, I'm technically self-employed, but certainly wouldn't call myself an entrepreneur, but somewhere on that spectrum is a level of like, I can pretty much choose when I want to work, how many yeah. clients I take on, who I take on or not, how I organize yeah. my time. So, so there's a certain amount of, um, without sort of setting up a business, there's a certain amount of purposefulness. I, I maybe have to be more conscious of than I would be if I had a nine to five. Um, hmm. But yeah, then that, that's kind of a bit off your point. But yeah, there's also the more, as you say, in the kind of social sciences, there's perhaps a more nurturing colleague environment where there's no, I, I mean, I, I, 
I don't feel any level of competition. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's something I've, I've thought about that. Um, having, I'm, I've just recently gone into a hospital environment, which is typically a bit more hierarchical. Yeah. Like, especially in the treatment teams that you work with, there's the, um, you know, the psychiatrist and the doctors, um, and then there's, you know, nurses and, um, psychologists and then social workers and occupational therapists, you know, there's a whole team of people. And I guess just in, in general, I feel like I've been able to kind of hold my own and not be too intimidated by the hierarchical structure of that, but I've managed to, you know, um, assert myself in the same way. I feel like I make, I, I talk the same way to the psychiatrist as I do to the, the student who's with us for two weeks. I, I yeah. feel in general across that workplace that I'm genu- generally like that, yeah. which I quite like. I don't know whether it's, um, yeah, yeah. What that comes down to, but it's, uh, it was a, a nice reflection that I had that I don't tend to change too much within hierarchies. I'm a bit more just focusing on like what I've got to do and my purpose there and just kind of enjoy the people around yeah. me as opposed to, um, changing who I am depending on like, Oh crap, it's the head doctor or it's like yeah, yeah. the head of operations. I'm like, I'll make the same jokes. I'll say the same stuff. Like, awesome. <laughs> I'll be the same person. Yeah. So that, that was a nice reflection to know that I don't tend to mold myself to other people, but I, I have a strong sense that if I was in like a more competitive environment, yeah. I would, I would probably struggle with that competition. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting yeah. reflection. Because on the mm. one hand, you said earlier, there's a part of you at work that perhaps um, lacks assertion. Uh, but then it's also nice to hear you say, but that doesn't, that's not affected by hierarchy. So it's something else. It's it's not like, oh, I care more what the uh, head consultant thinks than what the junior yeah. thinks or something like that. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess just like clarify that. I do, I do still like, I'm still working on, you know, what parts of myself to share at work and things like that. But as you said, it doesn't, it's not necessarily like to who in the organization It's just kind of to everyone in general. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So it's not, um, it's not complicated by the fact that I'm trying to decide between what to tell different people in the org. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. Otherwise, probably sound like I was uh, contradicting myself. Hypocrite. So. <laughs> <laughs> Not living yeah. with integrity. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. Um, I guess just one, one final thing on that for me that this yeah. got me thinking is, um, you know, just the simple stuff of maybe not simple, but the, the line of, you know, if I brought more awareness to my work, if I brought more responsibility to my work, if I was yeah. more purposeful at work, what would that, that do? So I guess it's just reminded me I'm, I'm being a bit more, thoughtful and I'm kind of setting intentions before I go into work. So I know the moment I get off the bus before I walk into work, I'm just kind of playing through like, right, what do I want to be like today? How can I get the ball rolling? What are some things I'm, I'd like to achieve today? How can I communicate? Yeah. Better? What sort of, you know, those elements of self-esteem, what can I bring to work and maybe look to improve on? That's reminded me of a couple of maybe hanging threads from living purposefully, which is, uh, he talked about kind of criticisms to the idea and that, um, you know, a life of sort of goal setting and achievement doesn't sound very pleasant. Um, Mm. it sounds kind of 
you know, almost, almost, uh, lacking self-esteem that you're constantly wanting more, constantly moving the goalposts kind of thing. Yeah. And, um, the way he's sort of, which he, I mean, he would agree with that second part is, yeah, well, you don't want that. That's just sort of a straw man for my idea. But, uh, that he's like, similarly with the philosophy of self-esteem, we will be setting goals in a line with values and acting in accord with them, whether we choose it or not. Like when you, when you're lying on the sofa, you, you get a bit peckish. You sort of unconsciously load up the Domino's page and order a pizza. Yeah. You've had a value. You've set a goal. You've made a plan in line to achieve it. And you've set yeah. those actions in motions to reach that goal. Like you're going to, we will do this regardless of whether we set them consciously or not. So his point mm. isn't that like yeah. you can't live, you know, that do you live better by setting goals or not? It's that no, no, you, you are setting goals all the time anyway, and you are making plans of yeah. action to attain them. I just suggest you do it on purpose. <laughs> on purpose. Yeah. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to, um, this is quite an interesting section in the book. So self-esteem yeah. and psychotherapy. So I know oh, yeah. you as a, as a, a trained you know, psychotherapist and working in this field. Um, yeah. And I guess he doesn't, the way in which he talks about it isn't necessarily about all just like strategies for psychotherapists, but he talks no. about like some good, some good aims for psychotherapists to maybe work towards in the, um, in the building of self-esteem and how psychotherapy can support someone to build their self-esteem. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the, one of the first things he talks about in the chapter that really interested me was that, um, psychological problems are not just around a lack of self-esteem, but a denial of poor self-esteem. Oh yeah. So, so it talks about how basically people adopt behaviors to compensate for their poor self-esteem rather than, lacking self-esteem so yeah. something might be like controlling and manipulative behavior destructive ambition you talked about as well um and that like by confronting confronting this fact that can help to raise self-esteem so yeah that's a really interesting point because yeah you might uh only take on self-esteem as sort of a and a desired outcome of therapy uh, if the client says like, I don't like myself and I want to work on that. Right. Whereas if mm -hmm. like, if that's less conscious, then it could be easy for the therapist not to, um, see that as a desired outcome. And then, mm. and he talks about how, how it affects everything really. Yeah. Like, but yeah, all I think life. that's, that's his main sort of criticisms of, psychotherapies in general and and this self-esteem approach is that uh that therapies generally say like well this is our model and our methods and our way of working and as a byproduct of this self-esteem will rise and he's saying like he's saying like, like that's it shouldn't be a byproduct of the work like self-esteem is the thing to work on basically to for, for so many other issues and that so mm. much of the time that's the core thing that we shouldn't be seeing it as some byproducts that will achieve by working on something else it should be kind of the main focus the main focus yeah yeah how do you feel about that as a 
as a you know practicing psychotherapist is that something that you'd thought about prior to reading this book or um I might not have phrased it that way, but when I think of all the approaches, so like, let's say in, in cognitive therapy, you're trying to raise people's awareness, um, of their, Mm -hmm. of their thoughts, their assumptions, their behaviors, and their underpinning core beliefs so that they then have, and then on top of that awareness, um, providing a, maybe a few skills to challenge those thoughts and behaviors and try something new and that yeah. therefore will challenge the core beliefs. And usually the core beliefs are all going to be implicitly things of low self-esteem. Like I'm yeah. another bill. I'm not good enough. Um, mm-hmm. people won't like me if I'm not X, Y, and Z. So, so from that point of view that, yeah, like it's hard to think of a, a core belief in cognitive therapy that wouldn't implicitly imply, implicitly imply, wouldn't imply low self-esteem. Um, and hmm. then I guess from a person centered perspective, it's all around acceptance, which is the second pillar. Um, so yeah, I, I might, I might not have thought about it in, um, sorry, I'm just thinking of other thought forms like before this call I mentioned about acceptance and commitment therapy where like, mm-hmm. that's basically, uh, self-acceptance and then personal integrity and living purposefully like there's yeah. so many ways you can integrate these different models in yeah um, and he holds it like central to yeah. all of this but it is interesting yeah to see how like different um you know psychological approaches or different methods can still address these these things and he says it's hard to avoid <clears throat> like you are you are dealing with someone's self-esteem when you're working on these things yeah and one thing that I think stood out for me in terms of a reflection that I want to more bear in mind uh, with my practice would be he makes this distinction between um, process and content. So in writing a book, you're largely, I mean, it is, it's all content because you're not sat in a room with Nathaniel Brandon, you're reading his text. So he's just like teaching you principles that you're reading. But in in a relationship, um, there are ways of being which nurture the principles, which he's kind of saying that's more important than the teaching or explication of them. So when you're teaching someone something in terms of what you mentioned earlier, there's perhaps it, there might be times where it's appropriate and, you know, psychoeducation is a big part of therapy, but the more that happens, it, it kind of does imply a hierarchy, right? Of a, hmm. you know, a superior, inferior teacher student kind of relationship yeah, when you're, yeah. when you're in that role. Whereas, um, if you're acting in a way that's assuming the other person is efficacious, is worthy of happiness and respectful, and that y- you're talking and acting as if, they are capable of, let's say, a lot more than they might believe they are at that moment in time. Yeah. That's a um, perhaps a, a stronger way of being than than maybe like 
goal setting or teaching to yeah get the yeah. principles across gotcha yeah 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 it's uh yeah it's it's an interesting chapter i find it particularly interesting because you know working with um you know working with people it's there's obviously something you can um you know apply apply in in any kind of conversation you have with someone anyway <clears throat> like is what is what you're talking about you know supportive of their self-acceptance bringing consciousness to mm. the, the problem or issue they're bringing to you um and something uh, that stood out to me here was around uh, like that he talks about like survival strategies around you know minimizing pain and rejection, and it's important for us to get in in contact with like our needs and find solutions mm. to that. Um, that's something I find I do do at work, trying to you know work with people to help them see their issue clearly and then yeah. formulate. Um, formulate strategies and goals around that it's yeah uh, yeah it's quite a key part of um working within a recovery model within yeah. mental health settings trying to get people to yeah <laughs> work with like genuinely holding hope with them and believing that change can be made yeah. and we talk a lot about um you know supportive risk as well when people are going like people should be supported to take risks and assess that themselves. So I guess that comes around like living purposefully in yeah. a sense that allowing people to make choices about how they solve the issues in their life or how they recover from the illness their um, illness they've come in with. Yeah. Yeah. So um, nurturing their self-responsibility and self-purposefulness, yeah. living purposefully. Yeah, and giving them choices as opposed to just telling them what to do. Yeah, yeah. As well, you know, that's a big part of it, giving yeah. them an agency, a bit of providing some autonomy and you know, even that word like providing autonomy. <laughs> like, like, assuming autonomy, like assuming, assuming that they're responsible. That's, yeah. that's it, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad I had a chance to correct myself there. But it's, um, yeah, particularly this section stood out as I'm working or trying to work within a recovery model within yeah. within a medical model. <laughs> yeah. I mean? yeah, 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 yeah. So you know, which is difficult, work. isn't it? Because the medical model is inherently superior, inferior, doctor patient, and then yeah, I, I think yeah, it's it seems. I always feel like it's. I know exactly what you say. It seems unfair when to call it like an entirely medical model when I've seen like the doctors I work with are very recovery. Yeah, oriented, which is yeah, you know, yeah. really lovely to see, and it's great to be a part of a team like that. But, then but that's because they've integrated other models, right? Like the person's yeah, exactly, yeah, approaches, yeah. Of course, yeah, and then I've worked in other workplaces where it's just really like prescriptive and just yeah, everyone's a yeah, yeah. But yeah, interesting. You know, thinking about that, you know, how do we how do we nurture yeah self esteem and all the elements yeah. of this that are really important to just happy living <clears throat> in general and six, you know, positive, positive outcomes in someone's life yeah. through recovery. Um, yeah, it stood out to me and related a lot to the work section in this. Um, there was something I wanted to ask you about, um, the part around integrating sub personalities. Oh yeah. Um, so, um, talks about like there's different parts of ourselves. So whether that's the child self or the, the teenage self he talks about yeah. talks about the mother self, the father self, the outer self and the inner self, all these different yeah. um, elements that are, you know, made up of our emotions, values, 
needs and responses. I wonder, is that something that um, interests you in your practice and something that you you work a lot with? So I know you've spoken about in acceptance and commitment therapy, you've given examples of times you've practiced getting people to be um, nurturing and kind to their child self, asking them how they would approach approach them and yeah, so that would, stand out to you? Yeah, so it's... Again, with all these psychotherapy models, it's like one of those ideas that um, have been like replicated in just slightly different ways and loads of different models. So there's like yeah, yeah. internal family systems therapy is based on this where you're just a, a bunch of, of sub-personalities that you're learning to let all have a seat at the table and that they can all communicate and get on and not deny each other and that sort of thing and yeah compassion focused therapy talks a lot about different parts of yourself like nurturing the wounded inner child part that sort of thing and he mentioned in the book like ta uh, transactional analysis where you've got the parent adult child model they're like ego states aren't they as opposed to like emotions values and needs it's more of a ego state he did mention there was a difference between the two that i wanted to ask you about actually okay so i think he, they they would still be the same in the sense that thus ego states is just another word for a subpersonality. so like or a, or a part or a subpart or whatever you're going to call it but it's like a so rather than having like so we've obviously we have different emotions we feel different things at different times and we have different um wants at different times different ideas at different times but it's like more than that it's more like we have a um we have patterns of like roles mm. entire roles we can step into and like yeah, i might yeah. step into one role which has a whole belief system mm. and set of assumptions and axioms and set into another role which has perhaps a whole different belief system uh, so it's it's like and that will have its own uh, responses and reactions. So um, he talks about. Mm. I was going to say he talks about like seeing each of those subpersonalities, like getting familiar with them and understanding them, yeah. and then balancing the roles between them. Yeah, and integrating so, like, them. integrating them, but then like finding a balance between them. The I think the part you asked about the difference between ego states. I think from what I remember of reading this book, his crit his distinction between what he was talking about and ego states and transactional analysis is that like, we don't just have, so in transactional analysis, you have this like inner parent and he was like, that's a, that's not a helpful concept because potentially because we, we definitely have like an internal mother and a father who might have very different, um, like when we're in that role that they might be very different from one another. So it's not helping yeah, to yeah. blend them into this, this yeah. concept of parent. That's the main distinction I remember him talking about. Mm. And I think also with the child, like, like you say, there's, there's very distinct teenage self, which is different from that sort of prepubescent child self. Yeah. The one that's kind of emerging into independence and yeah. breaking away from, yeah. And he, he gives examples about how, you know, asking what, 
yeah, I guess asking what part of yourself is reacting in a certain situation sometimes. Yeah. Like, can, can you see, like, oh, this is just my teenage self, like, kicking off? Or is this the child self who's, who's afraid yeah. at this moment in time? Or have I adopted some of the mannerisms of the, the father self or yeah. whatever? Um, yeah, really interesting stuff. Uh, I mean, he talked about yeah. uh, walking out the office uh, with his last client of the day. And um, the client was like, oh, it's cold tonight. <laughs> and he was like, oh, you, you came here in winter without a sweater on. And like his client was like, surprised. He's like, oh, just ignore me. That was my mother talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's really, I really like that example. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. Um, cool. So the, the last um, chapter of the external factors yeah. was cu- culture. Oh, yeah. Um, culture and self-esteem. So he, he says that, self-esteem is kind of quite quite a recent western idea but that it is like understood and pervasive in all cultures yeah he's he's not necessarily it's kind of a only pervasive in western but um he he talks um i guess something i just want to reflect on is like i guess as a, a broad question to get us going um like did growing up in england like close off certain parts of you know self-expression i guess we spoke about it a bit earlier and around that self-acceptance i'm just really interested to know what your thoughts are about the culture of where we where we grew up and how england affects people's self-esteem i, I guess i've got my yeah. ideas but i'd love to i'd love to hear yours well i think in, like speaking really broadly and generally like you probably couldn't live in in a more um in terms of history in a more sort of individualized and uh uh yeah r- respecting of the growth of the individual than like in the sort of modern west yeah yeah so like it's positive in in that respect that you know we're not there's not a like rigid caste system or yeah or like this sort of feudal culture or like s- slavery like I, I these are extremes but just in a broad sense of where you could be in history like, where you could be yeah, got yeah. it pretty good um yeah yeah and so i think in and general sort of the autonomy of the individual is pretty well <sighs> I, I don't want to uh, talk out of my depth. Yeah. There's a lot of self-sacrifice in Christianity, but I think there is also a respect for the individual in Christianity. And I think that sort yeah. of, that pervades the underlying culture in um, a helpful way that we, we, you know, we, the individual does matter. We're not just a, uh, a collective piece like yeah. of the puzzle. I guess, I guess- Mm. Yeah, but, I, guess, yeah. I guess just my my point is is that like when you think of um, even more individualistic cultures such as like America and like you know the American Dream and some of the um, the I suppose like areas of like self expression and the entrepreneurship there seems a lot more vibrant and acceptable compared to that of England. I suppose just in England it seems if you, in my eyes, what I learned was that if you um, push yourself or try to exceed it's kind of 
it's almost like putting other people down, especially if you talk about it, like going outside of your, um, outside of your area or like pushing yourself more than other people do is seen to be kind of, there's an air of like arrogance. You think you're better than us. I mean, that's just my experience of, um, maybe growing up in the small village we did. I know, um, you know, where my dad grew up in Wolverhampton and things like that, you know, people had very set jobs they did and stayed within set structures. And then if someone kind of broke out of that or married outside of that as well, it yeah. was kind of seen, it yeah, was no, seen but, a, uh, yeah, definitely an assault on the norm. Saying. Yeah. It's like an assault on the norm. So yeah, I suppose I've always like felt that cautiousness kind of with me when I'm exerting myself or, you know, asserting yeah. myself. Yeah. I think it happens in the States as well. Like, do you, um, are you familiar with Goodwill hunting? No, I haven't seen that. Oh, okay. So these guys in Boston, they're, they're it's a movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they're, yeah. uh, construction workers, but one of them is like sort of a secret genius and the Ben Affleck character, you know, thankfully like has his mate. Who's this, secret genius like he has good intentions for him and, and does like nurture his growth to go and be more than he can be mm. but like the general like uh like building site kind of culture is like who the hell do you think you are to try and be more than this you know and i, I yeah. think there are like pockets of american culture which have that as well where it's like yeah but yeah and, and i yeah I, I see what you mean and maybe you rural areas or kind of rigid family systems it's like who are you to try and industrial areas as well yeah yeah, yeah. and who i think you to try um, and get out of this i think it, I, I he talked about it um in the book as like you know like when you're in a i don't know how to put it <laughs> there's no non-pc way of saying but like a sort of uh uh, maybe a, a lower working class kind of culture, then mm. if you aspire and try to be more, then you're kind of proving to other people that, well, maybe you could be more too. And that, and that could be quite confronting to face. So there's a kind of desire to pull people back down. Yeah. Right? I think that's it as well. I, and I, what, what I'm talking about, I, I think, you know, England now maybe as compared to like 50 years ago, or just maybe the world yeah. in general compared to like 50 years ago. I, I just feel that there's a, like, that's a, it's like an undercurrent. It's, it's a, yeah. it's just a sense I have in living there that like what you're saying that just there's that perceived kind of arrogance or that perceived, like, don't push yourself too hard because you make other people yeah. look bad. And I guess that comes around maybe, um, like British manners as well. And the whole, um, you know, stiff up a lip, just get on with what you need to do. Stop trying to be excel yourself and try and be the hero. Just do your bit for country. And, you know, have like the Victorian era, they, they literally like cemented over all like the inner streams and lakes in London. So they could do more industry and put factories on top of it. They literally like stopped the, the spreading and the flow and connections of people and the rivers to connect people, they've like repressed that and pushed that down. I, I just feel personally, I sense that particularly in like industrial areas and rural areas that we, 
it, I'm nervous to exert, exert myself when I lived there. Yeah. It took like coming to live over here to sort of feel okay about sort of pushing myself and doing what I wanted. Yeah. I'm well, uh, uh, one of the things I'm grateful for about my upbringing is my, um, parents working for themselves and that there are parts of it I didn't like, but, but it's weird, isn't it? That in the kind of cultural blueprint, there's this assumption that you get educated to get a job, but like you can only have a job if there are entrepreneurs that make businesses, but there seems like that's, that's (laughs) not, so someone has to be out like making things from scratch and starting businesses but yeah, it's assumed yeah. like the blueprint is that we're all going to get, and I guess there are, um, you know, you could work for the state if in, in their institutions, but like outside of that, it's, there wasn't an assumption that people would be entrepreneurs and pe- you would make a business, right? There's the assumption mm. you get a job, but then, yeah. Yeah. So, so I think that's, that's an example of a, a um, cultural norm, which is not nurturing the, purposefulness of the individual Hmm. um he talks quite critically of um like tribal cultures of saying that they're like anti-self-esteem like they encourage self-sacrifice and that your self-esteem is only um dependent on how well you serve the tribe yeah it says like going too far one way with tribal cultures is um yeah negative towards self-esteem yeah yeah i think he mean like it's fair to point out i think he means something specific by tribal not just like he means a that has these collectivist ideals obviously we grew yeah. up in tribes for millennia, yeah yeah, yeah. But, like, we, yeah but i think there are there's a way to have a literal tribe and still nurture people's self-esteem but i think he, he yeah, means something yeah. more specific yeah that in a I guess sort of communist collectivist idea that when you're just, when the individual isn't respected, when you're just a piece of the whole, then that uh, sets the stage for like, you know, when, when we see uh, individuals suffer or die or get killed, like the reason that's, not the only reason, but a reason that is so gut wrenching is because we have a respect for the individual. But if you can mm. just see, if you can just otherize people as as pieces of a collective, then it's easier to sort of because he he talked about didn't he like Nazism and um, Soviet Russia and stuff where where you can yeah. kind of the psychological states you can get in to be able to just slaughter people because it's, mm. if you don't respect the individual, then that's that there's no empathy for that. I, mean, yeah. I guess he's talking about the risks of that. Mm. I reckon, um, we're on to the, uh, the final chapter, which he calls the seventh pillar of self-esteem. Yeah. He, uh, throws that. I guess, um, it's just a, a nice ending to the book, I think. And he talks about, um, you know, like a key ingredient to be able to live by all these six pillars of self-esteem um, that we spoke about earlier and also, I suppose, acknowledging the six external factors that influence a person's self-esteem. And I guess w- one of the first lines he talks about is that, you know, genuine self-esteem is what we feel about ourselves 
not when everything's going well, but when nothing is all right. Yeah. And that really stood out to me um, as a, you know, a core principle about what he talks about in terms of we, we need a willingness to live by the six pillars when things aren't going, yeah, yeah. going well. We're free and we have choice to respond in ways that are nurturing of our self-esteem and work towards the elements of you know, self-responsibility, raising our consciousness, self-acceptance, living purposefully. Like yeah. We have a choice to live by those when things aren't going well. Instead of avoiding discomfort, we can choose to confront these things and be more purposeful. Yeah, so the avoidances of um, immediate discomfort, like immediate like living by immediate gratification, that sort of thing. It's ways of avoiding any pain so things can seem okay. But mm. if you strip all that back to, to purely, yeah, when you, I don't know, your wife leaves you and you lose your job, like that will be a time where your self-esteem is exposed for what it is, I think was his yeah. point in that. Like that will be, y- y- you might be able to kind of hide yourself from it when things are comfortable, but it's mm. when things are challenging that you need, like self-esteem is most um, helpful, um, most important, not important. Needed. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And he's, he says uh, the energy to... Protective, yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. I, I've thought about those moments, you know, when I've had a, you know, maybe a, a dip in mood or there's been, um, you know, something that's gone on in my life. Like, what is it? Like, I think that put, putting more consciousness or more self-acceptance or taking more responsibility or living more purposefully or, you know, all these, all these elements of self-esteem or living with more personal integrity, you know, that's actually what's going to help me get through those moments rather than yeah. you know kind of finding ways to distract myself or avoid the problem you know that that's what i need to do and i guess it's kind of a it's a cute ending he ends on that i i do i do believe in but around you know like the energy to do all this like the willingness yeah. comes from a love of life you know yeah. wanting wanting better for yourself wanting wanting to improve like yeah you know that quite like humanistic approach of like we we want better for ourselves we want more so like yeah in these moments your love of life is what's going to be motivating you to work on these things do you remember the chapter about love in the road less traveled yes <laughs> it, it yeah. reminded me of that where it's like when he's talked about you know the seventh peer pillar being to sort of love yourself it's like yeah to, to take the stance of my growth and my well-being matters like although mm. in in some ways that's also his definition of self-esteem it, it's you you can both simultaneously have a sense of not liking yourself but choose to want to be someone who likes yourself mm. i think yeah or choose to take the actions that would eventually lead to you being able to like yourself exactly. you know like yeah working on those yeah so taking responsibility for like i say yeah i i don't like myself and but but not just succumbing to that 
but thinking mm. like to love yourself would it's weird to say to dislike yourself and love yourself in the same sentence but uh, i dislike myself i accept that and i accept that as a problem and want i want to do something about it like i want to be someone who likes myself approach it with love yeah or with at least your love of life yeah 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 it's uh yeah i always find in books like this when they end on something like that it's i guess it leaves you thinking yourself doesn't it like what's your after all of these strategies or you know these um practices yeah and all of these opinions and ways of thinking about things it kind of does sort of come to a i don't want to use like a harrowing end to the book where it's like well, what are you going to do about it? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, like, what's motivating you here? Because I, this book can't answer all of your questions. There's something that you're connected to, or that you're yet to be connected to, that is going to carry you forward and mm. motivate you to do these. And I don't, I don't know if any book ever really will have the the exact answer on like how to motivate yourself. Mm. when you're not feeling you know when you're not feeling good or things aren't all right mm. you know there's perspectives you can take practices you can do think mm. but there, there's there's always that small something that they're alluding to that you know sometimes it turns religious sometimes it just mm. he leaves it nice because it's just one little line at the end of the book mm. where it's like in in the road less traveled he has like a whole chapter at the <laughs> end about like yeah yeah grace and love and growth and no it's all it's all like really lovely but i feel like this one left me pondering a bit more about like what is my motivation for yeah wanting to address these these practices yeah what's the point in life well that's our next podcast is it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well um I'm, mate, I'm really grateful for you sharing this book mm. with me. It's been, um, I, I feel like doing it in two parts. This is maybe one of our more uh, thorough assessments of a book that we've done. Um, but I'm really it. glad we did it. It's an absolute... I think I described it to you as like a Bible of sorts. I was about to say uh, that. In the week, yeah. yeah, I chatted to you and you described it as a, as a Bible. And yeah, I, I like... I, that resonated with me because it's... Yeah, it feels like a reference text that I will want to keep returning to and reflecting on. Yeah, I'm really glad I bought the um, like the paper copy of it as well because yeah. I can kind of I've got that now and I I yeah. really thoroughly enjoyed that and consumed it and uh, yeah, really glad we talked about it. It seems to uh, get at you from like obviously six different angles. Yeah, it really sort of probes you to think about you know what can I do to raise more consciousness, raise more awareness, yeah. live more purposefully. It covers a lot, and I guess um, to anyone listening who reads it, I think, uh, yeah, it's it, it's a confronting read in some ways because there's so much, so much to it, and so many different elements to it that you know maybe be kind when you're reading it if this is something that you might find difficult. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, can feel like very high standards to hold yourself to, right? But like mm. he does keep saying like just a little bit more <laughs> like five percent is fine like if you're living yeah. really unconsciously just raise a little like a little bit more will, will do wonders yeah. to your self-esteem yeah. so it's not about like 
having lofty ideals to live by and we're gonna not live by the principles at times which is why we need them <laughs> well yeah thank you yeah thanks, thanks a, lot, a lot, mate. lot mate yeah really glad i feel like we've we've reflected on a lot there so I'm, I'm glad we uh i'm glad we did that and thanks so much for um yeah thanks so much for sharing the book with me and i'm gonna probably keep that on my bookshelf for as long as i live so thanks cool <laughs> no worries <laughs> <laughs> yeah i really appreciate this mate i look forward to next one next one which is uh a on book confidence called, yeah on confidence written by the school of life so i actually attended a uh a workshop on this as well like a three hour evening workshop and uh i obviously bought the book afterwards as well so um yeah it's just a nice little short i think it's like a hundred page book so yeah hoping we can just um look at the principles of that and yeah a bit of respite from a (laughs) from a more longer in-depth book i think that's what's needed yeah Yeah, i look forward to it mate